Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Health Affairs This Week. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Gabriel Watts. And I'm so happy to be doing the show this week, babe, because it is National Public Health Week. Yes. And yes, and I just wanted to take a minute and say thank you and to recognize all of the public health workers who've given so much of themselves this past year. Um, I think through the pandemic, we've all hopefully come to understand just how meaningful and just how important the work of public health is. And it's full of people who've literally dedicated their lives to making our lives healthier. So to them, we just want to say thank you. Um, Anyone in public health that you want to give a shout out to? No, you know what? well, Well, yeah. Not particularly just one individual person. I, I would say 2020 was the year of public health. It was a year where, you know, the public health workers got on the ground to really combat this um, pandemic and they're still doing it today. So I would just like to say thank you for being you and showing the world who you are and the value that you bring to this country and world every day. Yeah. And I mean, there's no reason that we have to wait around every year for National Public Health Week, although I think uh, taking time out to, you know, observe this week is great, um, but we definitely can and and should be grateful uh, year round. And I know I'll probably be thanking everyone I see uh, when I show up on Sunday morning for my COVID vaccine, um, because like you said, public health plays such a big part in how we got here. Yeah, so if, if you see someone in public health or know someone, just send them a text and just simply say thank you. <laughs> uh, but thinking back, you know, long before COVID-19, we were up against a different public health crisis and we're talking, of course, about the opioid epidemic. And we're beginning to get a look um, at how the trajectory of that epidemic has changed, right, and how Unfortunately, it's become more acute over the last year as we've been focused on the pandemic. Yes, Leslie. Now, we will say the final data will not be available until, you know, the end of this year. But a preliminary analysis by the Commonwealth Fund found that uh, shortly after the pandemic, monthly overdose deaths spiked 50 percent. And so now they're predicting that in 2020, that overdose deaths may top 90,000, and, and that's up from 70,000 in 2019. So that's a huge difference. Now, this is troublesome because the pandemic has hurt over, I would say, a decade, well, more than a decade of efforts to fight overdose deaths, in particular, opioid drug-related deaths, which account which have accounted for more than 65% of the total overdose death in the past decade. So this is not looking too good. You know, you think about how the pandemic has in many ways been kind of this perfect storm, right, in terms of the economic fallout and the social isolation for people with substance use and mental health uh, disorders and addiction. But it's also been really hard, I think, for the people working in these fields who felt like they were just they were they were making progress because of the visibility of this issue. Um, has gotten kind of at the highest levels, not to mention the funding that was dedicated to getting the opioid crisis under control. But I think, 
given the urgency of the situation that you just laid out, I think it's going to get a lot more attention as the pandemic starts to recede. Um, I wouldn't say it's been totally forgotten either, which is good. The American Rescue Plan Act, for example, came with some emergency funding for substance use. And I think, too, case in point, earlier this week, several members of Congress sent a letter to the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services asking the agency to renew a public health emergency declaration that was set to expire. So just to quickly recap, the declaration was issued for the first time in October 2017 under the Public Health Service Act, and that was really the first time that a public health emergency had ever been made officially, you know, in response to the opioid crisis, even though overdose deaths had been on the rise for many years. That was one of the things that prompted it. And the emergency status of this declaration has been renewed 12 times now, sadly, because as the numbers you pointed out show, the opioid epidemic has continued to get worse. So in their letter, congressional leaders appealed once again to the administration to renew the declaration before it expired, and HHS did extend it effective today, uh, the day we're recording, so April 8th, cutting it pretty close, um, but it did ultimately get renewed, and that's what matters. Yeah, and, and and that is important because there was so much effort over the past couple of years, you know, to fight, you know, opiate epidemic. You had the Obama, the, the Obama administration proposing $1.1 billion to fight, you know, um, opiate overdose, which would uh, support cooperative agreements with states to expand access to medication-assisted treatment for opiate use disorders. And it was just a lot of different efforts to, that, that was going towards really combating opioid use in this country. So, Vabe, you and I were talking before this recording saying how emergency declarations feel really familiar right now. And that's because they are. Um, we've been under one, uh, the same thing pursuant to the same act, the same authority for COVID-19 for many months now. Yeah, and, and 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 I guess the question I want to know is like, what is exactly an emergency declaration? I just need like just a course one on one on that. <laughs> the way it works is that the HHS secretary can declare a public health emergency after determining either that a disease constitutes a public health threat or that a public health emergency otherwise exists uh, that it's already underway. So that can be interpreted pretty broadly, and it essentially gives the secretary a range of different authorities to help with the response. And in some cases, it triggers a little bit more leeway for the government to use or redirect its resources. And, and how the secretary decides uh, which authorities to use, of course, looks different depending on the situation, but you might see more regulatory flexibilities, expedited support for research, and sometimes emergency funding or different types of personnel that, that might get deployed. Um, these declarations also need to be renewed every 90 days, otherwise they can lapse, which is why Congress evidently wanted to send a little reminder. So, so you know, there are some advantages um, to having this sort of formal declaration, but there's a lot you can accomplish outside the emergency status too. And so I want to just kind of continue on this for a minute. So it's 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 been tough to say what kind of effect this particular declaration has had on the opioid epidemic over the years, but 
you know, to kind of turn it back to now, the thing that people are following is what happens with the declaration for the COVID-19 public health emergency. We talked about how the two issues are, are really intertwined. And there's concern that access to opioid treatment, among other things, but just to use one example, um, that access to treatment could really become a problem once the pandemic is over. And that's because through the use of these emergency authorities, the DEA and SAMHSA, which is the federal agency for substance abuse and mental health services, they temporarily loosened up a set of prescribing rules um, to allow providers to prescribe buprenorphine, which is a medication that's used to treat opioid use disorder um, during a, a telehealth visit. Yeah, yeah, during yeah, a, yeah, yeah, during yeah. a telehealth visit. So the change was they no longer have to come in for an in-person exam first. So, um, you know, what's the implication? Well, this made it a lot easier for people to start treatment regardless of where they live, you know, and that's important because as we've been talking about, you know, COVID-19 and the opioid crisis have hit some communities um, much harder than others. Yeah, they're going to have to, I guess, you know, figure this out because as I know, like they did this, this part of the whole, you know, combat against the um, opiate overdose was really to um, keep people for, from diverting, you know, certain medications and things like that. So I wonder, you know, just in the future, what this will look like as they, um, you know, actually, I guess, keep renewing the declaration because she said it's every 90 days. And, and, and so I'm sure even in this time of COVID, every 90 days looks different because it's changed so much. That's yeah, that's a good point. And what about and and what about the impact on on rural communities? Yeah, so so so, so yeah, I mean I think about um just this rural communities in in general which, you know, the opiate epidemic was had really impacted rural communities in particular um um, those communities, um, one community in Indiana, I forget the county's name in Indiana, they had like the um, epidemic, um, an opioid ep epidemic. And then also West Virginia was another, um, the state of West Virginia was another hot spot, you know, um, with that. And, and we all, and we know in rural communities that you do have problems with access. It's going to be interesting to see how all this plays out in that we do have equity, you know, including racial equity, but as well as like geographical equity across like how we can combat this epidemic. Because like I said, so much work went towards combating this in the era where things were, I would say, quote unquote, normal. Yeah. And you're, you're talking about, you know, access, but there's also sort of the issue of treatment capacity and treatment scarcity in these rural areas. And, um, you know, I think another concern that we should be thinking about and planning for is how we approach co-occurring substance use and mental health disorders, again, knowing just that the pandemic and this prolonged period of isolation has affected both. And we've seen some early evidence that shows an increase in the need for treatment, but we also know there's just a significant gap and there are a lot of people whose needs in this regard um, are going unmet. Yeah, it's going to be interesting as this uh, unfolds. Some of the recent funding packages tied to COVID relief, again, have built in 
some targeted financial assistance for state and local governments. So that'll be an, an important infusion of money too for state treatment authorities to expand access to things like medication assisted treatment um, and recovery supports and systems, um, maybe looking at different types of modalities and opportunities that we can leverage um, and, and maybe how it all looks a little bit different in a post pandemic setting. Yeah, so it, it seems like as we were talking about at the beginning of the podcast, once again, our public health workers will have to figure this out and will have really a, a really tough job ahead of them, but I'm sure that they'll figure this out. Yeah, it's been a longstanding issue, but nevertheless, really important to talk about. So thanks, Fabe. Uh, thanks for joining me Thank you. on the show to have the conversation. I'm Leslie Erdelak. And I'm Vabrin Watts. And if you enjoyed the podcast of this week, please tell a friend. We'll see you next week.